We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Well, I trust you had a happy Thanksgiving and good time, I hope, with family and friends. It's good to be back together with you uh, for my second week back after a long break. And I'm grateful to be here and grateful to have an opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. We're back in 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, We all long for real power and we long for genuine life and for true wisdom. Uh, We long to address the fundamental condition of our needing to our desire to find rest, to find peace, joy, a sense of forgiveness from the things that we've done, a liberation from shame and guilt that we may be carrying around. We long to find genuine community and relationship with people and these things that are very much in our hearts. And we all long for them and we spend a lot of our energy seeking to find them. The Bible's claim, the Apostle Paul's claim, The claim of the Christian church and the claim of the Christian gospel, the good news that we uh, declare from this pulpit week after week, is that these things can only be found in God and only in and through the God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and particularly the person of Jesus who was crucified on a Roman cross. Here is true power. Here is true wisdom. And I should clarify that when we say the cross, we also mean, by virtue of the cross, the resurrection. You can't really separate, biblically speaking, the cross and the resurrection. I'm following the Apostle Paul here and focusing in on the cross, but Paul and anyone else who's lived after the resurrection in the Christian church can only view and understand the work of God in the cross through the lens of the fact that Christ rose from the dead. So let's remember always that the cross and resurrection do go together. But this, the cross, the cross is the foundation stone of the new entity that is built upon it. That is this countercultural, revolutionary community of love that we call the church. Not a perfect place, but the place in which God is at work in powerful ways, built upon the foundation of the gospel, which has at its center the cross of Christ. So Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, a church that is dealing with a lot of strife and disunity and trouble and trial, brings them quickly, as we saw last week, to the subject and theme of the cross. He takes them to the cross, and he's calling them to rethink the way that they're living together in the light of this foundational reality of the Christian life, the cross. Though they indeed have, in Corinth, become genuine and true disciples, their lives are still living in a kind of fleshly way. In chapter 3, he refers to them as people of the flesh. And he wants more for them than that. He wants them to grow into the fullness of maturity in Jesus. And so he brings them back to this foundation stone of the cross and longs for them to go from milk to solid food and to live out the life of the cross together. Last week we saw that Paul affirmed the priority of the proclamation of the cross in verse 17 and uh, of, of proclaiming the cross not with cleverness of speech or with words of eloquent wisdom, not in a way that would reinforce the idols of the day but he wants them to uh, he wants them to hear the power of this cross through the unadorned preaching and proclamation of the gospel we're going to come back to this text now so i invite you to open to this page i think it's 952 in your pew bible first corinthians chapter one 
And today we're going to consider Paul's ongoing arguments that, that now continues in verse 18 through verse 25. And I'd like us to think about this in three points. First, the action of God. Second, its subversive nature. And then third, the divergent responses to that action. So first, the action of God. The word of the cross is how our text begins. We saw last week that Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is in verse 17, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be nullified or rendered void or in the ESV emptied of its power. And then he continues in verse 18, for the word of the cross. There's two dimensions to the action of God in our text. There is firstly and primarily, chiefly, at least in terms of reality, there is the action of the cross itself. This event in which God enters into the world in human flesh and then goes as a human being to the cross, the Roman cross, where he is crucified, suffers, and dies. This cross is, again, the foundation stone of our lives and of the church. And two quick things to say about the cross, perhaps for those of you who may not be as familiar with this event. One is that this was the paradoxical way in which God would defeat our enemies, the greatest powers against us, the powers of evil, sin, and death, represented often in the scriptures through the devil, the chief antagonist of human beings. So we learn in Hebrews that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Or in 1 John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Or Jesus himself, before going to the cross in John chapter 12, says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I offer those references merely to say that in the cross we have, paradoxically, the moment at which the powers that are set against us are defeated. This is critical and important. Secondly, the cross was the way that God would bring about an atoning sacrifice for sin once for all. The scriptures teach us that we all have walked in a way that isn't in line with what God designed us, to, how God designed us to live and what his holiness and character requires. Every single one of us, whether we believe in this God or not, we are marred by this kind of rebellion, what we call sin. And that sin creates a problem in us of guilt. And it creates a separation between us and the God that we proclaim. And so there is a need and a way for God to address that problem, to deal with our filth, if you will, of sin. He set up a system of, sac of sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, which showed his way of dealing with, with, with sin, which was through the shedding of blood. But all of that sacrificial system that began in the book of Leviticus was just pointing toward this one great moment when there would be a once-for-all atoning sacrifice made. Do you remember what John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus for the first time in John's Gospel, chapter 1? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The means by which Jesus would take away or deal with the sins of your heart and mine is through his own sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross of Rome. It was there that the, the blood would be shed that would become the greatest cleansing agent of all to deal with our filth and our guilt so that we might be set free. 
So this is the cross. This is the action of God. There's a second dimension to God's action that is reflected on in our text, and I'd like you to look at the text with me. We'll see it in a few places here. Verse 18, we saw it already in verse 17 that Paul was called to proclaim the gospel. Verse 18, he then gives a shorthand for this proclamation and says, the word of the cross. Uh, This could actually better be translated, the word, the of the cross word. It's kind of the way the Greek reads. This is about the cross, this word that's proclaimed. Look in um, verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, or the, the foolishness of the preaching, to save those who believe. And again in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. All I'm pointing out here is there is the foundational action, which is the cross of Jesus, but then there's also the secondary action, which is the proclamation or the preaching of the cross, which is at the heart of Paul's thinking here in his letter. So I don't want to neglect that. There are these two dimensions, both of which are the means by which God is acting to redeem and to save in the world. It is through the the actual event of the cross and through the proclamation or preaching, the unadorned heralding of that event through the Apostle Paul and those who follow in his footsteps. In this dual sense, the action of God is, in, uh, is bringing about the results that God desires. So this action is at the center, the cross of Christ and the proclamation of that cross. Our second point then, if that's the action of God, is to think about the subversive nature of this action. I mentioned at the beginning that we all long for life, and we long for peace and joy and fulfillment, purpose, all of these things we long for. And so much of what we do is oriented to getting those things. The energy that we expend in life is oriented to arriving at those places. And this is most often exercised, our energy is most often spent, by seeking to attain uh, elevation in the systems of our culture and the world around us. Systems of value, of honor, of worth, and of status. We pursue these things with a frenzied sense of activity. We know this quite well in a city like Boston. This is something that defines us. Last week we saw that academic success or intellect, intellectual respectability is one of the idols of our culture. In ancient Corinth, it was the idol of Sophia, understood as eloquence or an elevated level of rhetoric and speech that would demonstrate genuine power. This is what they, they've followed. We often think of wealth as another one of these, but we, we seek to, to, to justify ourselves, if you will, to rescue and redeem ourselves by advancing in these systems of worldly power and status, honor, and value. And these are the very things that the action of God in the cross of Jesus Christ and in the ongoing proclamation through simple heralding, not sophisticated Greco-Roman rhetoric, these are the very things that God's action subverts. And this is a key point of what Paul is saying in our text. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Paul is articulating three people. We don't need to delineate a lot of distinctions between these three people, the wise, the scribe, and the debater of this age. We might say the orator or the rhetorician. Because these are the people that Paul is is pointing to, essentially anyone who has attained a level of status, within the cultural moment of the day in Corinth. 
These were the people who had arrived. They were at the top of the ladder. They were the ones who had found life and meaning and purpose according to the ways of the world. They had arrived in terms of the, 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 the scaffolding of, of self-salvation that was set out before them. I wonder, though, many of us sitting in this room, quite honestly, have had a similar kind of arrival in the, 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 the symbols of status and honor and worth in our culture today as well. And I, I want to be nuanced here and clear that having those things is not inherently wrong or evil. In fact, we should celebrate the, those as gifts from God often, but then use them for the sake of his purposes and his glory. If those things are used to justify ourselves or to have a sense of groundedness or worth or value in our lives, then we are inherently, we are off track. We've actually fallen into the systems that the gospel subverts. If, on the other hand, those things that we enjoy in our lives in terms of status and worth in our culture's eyes are being used not for our own gain, but to pour them out for the sake of others around us and for the glory of the God who's given us the gifts, opportunities, talents, discipline that we've had to arrive at these places, then they can be quite useful in the kingdom of God and used for his glory. But they're very dangerous, mind you. It's so easy for us to slip into the other trap, isn't it? Any one of you here who might could say you've arrived in that way would also no doubt testify to the fact that none of those things, none of them, bring you the sense of life, peace, joy, satisfaction, rest, purpose, for which your heart deeply longs. Because they cannot deliver those things. Outside of reconciliation with our Creator, our pursuit of those things is always woefully misguided. It never, ever delivers, and it leaves us empty and hollow and spent or burnt out. Those things cannot deliver or satisfy. We were created to find those things only in God alone. And how good it is, and here we look at um, verse 21, how good it is that God in his great wisdom did not allow us to arrive to him, to any sense of salvation or arrival through our own wisdom. Look at verse 21. It's a bit of a mouthful. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, that is through their horizontal plane understanding of wisdom. Why was this wise of God? Because God did not allow us to arrive at a sense of rest and peace and satisfaction and joy by climbing the ladders of the culture around us. Were he to have done so, he would have merely reinforced us in our sense of prideful self-satisfaction, which we are so prone to take in our accomplishments, or our possessions, or our pedigree, or whatever it might be. And that would have not liberated us at all. So in his great wisdom, God does not allow us to arrive in this way. Also, I should say, these systems of value, worth, honor, always, without any exceptions, divide the world into the haves and the have-nots. They stratify, they, they, they create um, different strata, and they put us in different levels. And there's a packing order along all of those systems. And there are some at the top, and there are those at the bottom who are forgotten. 
That is not the world that God envisioned. It's not the world that God will bless. God's kingdom brings about a very different kind of world. And the cross at the heart of that kingdom is what subverts those systems that divide his creatures, his image bearers, into the haves and the have-nots. So God, in his wisdom, doesn't allow us to arrive at a knowledge of him through our own wisdom, our own efforts, our own idols, our own pursuits. Rather, he subverts these pursuits. It pleased God, continuing in verse 21, through the folly of what we preach, the foolishness of the preaching to save those who believe. Or at the end of verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has God not set aside these things, pushed them to the side, and done something completely different, something that completely subverts them in his action in the cross? Paul even says this was always God's plan. Look at verse 19. I'm moving a bit backwards here, but it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. The context in Isaiah 29 for this comment that Paul picks up and quotes here in 1 Corinthians 1 is that God is going to do a wonder upon wonders that will confound the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. God is going to bring rescue to his people. He's going to lift up the poor and the meek. He's going to bring down the ruthless, the scoffer, and the evildoer. And he's even going to allow the deaf to hear and the blind to see when he does this climactic work. Does that sound familiar? That's why Paul quotes this here. Because he's saying, look, long ago, God promised that he would do something so marvelous and wonderful and great that it would turn the world up on its head. It would subvert the systems of value and power that the world understood were, that were the way that it worked. And it would create something new in its place. And this is what God has done through the cross and the preaching of the cross. He has made foolish the wisdom of the world. He had pleased God through the foolishness of the preaching to save those who believe. God's action is what we were all seeking in the first place. And in God's wisdom, he doesn't allow us to find it in our own wisdom or strength. Rather, he provides for it in a way that subverts the very systems that we are trapped in. And this will then enable a different kind of reality to emerge, a reality that we call the church, a place where everyone has a part and a role, where there are no little people, there are no have-nots, but everybody is brought in. And this is God's wisdom. This folly of preaching, as we see in verse 21, produces this response of saving those who believe. Dwayne Litfin, a scholar on 1 Corinthians and New Testament, the former president at Wheaton, wrote this. He said, to discover this salvation, men and women will have to renounce their pretensions to self-sacrifice, acknowledge their helplessness, and give up humanly striving to save themselves. Instead, they must humble themselves before God by acknowledging a crucified Jewish peasant to be Lord of the universe and, to, and, and, and his death on a Roman cross as their only hope for salvation. They must trust him and him alone as their only means of salvation. And this moves us then to our third point, the divergent responses to this. Those who are still in the systems of the value structures of the world cannot see the power of God and the wisdom of God unleashed in the cross and the unadorned proclamation of the cross that Paul carries out as an apostle. 
Rather, they are stuck. Uh, I used to be a raft guide, and uh, the saying was always, there are three kinds of guides, those who have not yet, yet flipped, those who are flipping, and those who will flip. Uh, thankfully, I got my flip out of the way in my first summer um, in a rapid called Seidel Suckhole. And if you've ever been rafting and you've been in a flip, you'll know that when the boat flips over, you don't really want to stay around that boat. Rather, it would be much better to swim to another boat that's in the pod with you to find safety. And I remember we flipped and everybody was going kind of all over the place and people found refuge in other, kind, in other rafts that were still upright while my raft went down the next rapid without me or anyone on it. In a similar sense, in this case, the cross of Jesus Christ is like a flipping of the world order. And those who recognize what's going on will quickly find refuge in this cross. Whereas those who have not yet realized what's going on continue to try to cling to the upside-down boat or the tipping-over tower or the building that's about to collapse and crumble. And we see that division, that divergence of responses here in our verses from 18 to 25. Look at verse 18. It is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 22. Those from within the paradigm of the world's structures of value and honor and worth say, and this is what Paul says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That is, they demand that God act in a way that would validate what they're looking for already. It would validate the systems in which they already live and seek status and honor and worth. God does not give them a sign, does he, or wisdom in the way that they were expecting. He says instead that this is a stumbling block to Jews, the cross of Christ. Think about it. The cross is this Roman instrument of execution and public humiliation for anyone who challenges the rule and peace and power of Rome to suggest for a moment to a people who had been waiting for God's redemption, waiting for a new exodus, waiting for deliverance from a military ruler that would defeat their enemies and set them free, that this God entered again as a Messiah, but actually instead of liberating them from their enemies, was defeated at the cross of Rome? No, no, no Jew could understand this who had had this redemptive hope in mind, even though God had put little codes in the Old Testament along the way to show what he was going to do. No, this was a stumbling block to them. This is not the way that our God, the God who rescued us from Egypt through the mighty hand of Moses, this is not the way that our God would work. So this is a stumbling block to Jews. Those, again, within the paradigm, still holding on to the upside-down boat, in the Greek world of wisdom. Greeks seek wisdom, verse 22. But this is folly to Gentiles, verse 23. One scholar writes about what the Greeks would have expected in this way, that God could be crucified was inconceivable in the minds of the ancients. To them, God was powerful and had honor and would never allow himself to be subjected to crucifixion. It would have been mind-boggling to them and would have had the appearance of foolishness. Martin Hengel, the great 20th century New Testament scholar, the German New Testament scholar, said this, The heart of the Christian message, which Paul described as the word of the cross, ran counter not only to Roman political thinking, but to the whole ethos of religion in ancient times, and in particular to the ideas of God held by educated people. To believe that the pre-existent Son of the one true God, the mediator of creation, and the redeemer of the world, 
had appeared in very recent times in the out-of-way Galilee as a member of the obscure people of the Jews, and even worse, died the death of a common criminal on the cross, this could only be regarded as a sign of madness. Foolishness to Gentiles. This foolishness, this response, still continues even into this day. Gandhi himself admired the cross, but could not accept its power. In his autobiography, he writes, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. It was just a good example of what it means to be sacrificial with your life, but there was no power in the cross. Muslims, even to this day, reject that Jesus, the great prophet of God, died on a cross, declaring that it is inappropriate that a major prophet of God should have come to such an end. It's not fitting. It's a scandal, and it cannot be accepted, and there is no need for it anyway. Nietzsche's disdain of the Christian faith as sympathizing with the weak and ill-constituted found its focal point for contempt in the idea of God on the cross. Foolishness. A stumbling block. If you're still clinging to the structures of value, worth, and status in the world today, then that is exactly what the cross will appear to be like. But there's another response referred to in this text in verse 18 as those being saved, in verse 21 as those who believe, and in verse 24 as those who are called. And they have come to see what the cross and its proclamation really is. The power of God and the wisdom of God. The power to save and to rescue, to liberate, to bring peace, purpose, fulfillment, satisfaction, reconciliation with our Creator, and even reconciliation with one another. And the wisdom of God, because God sets up the world now around the event of the cross in His own way, following His own character and purposes, which is to create a community of peace, of shalom, where every member of that community experiences genuine blessing and well-being by virtue of his grace and mercy, where there are no haves and have-nots, but only one new man made out of the two, because the dividing wall of hostility had been broken down, and the, there is now a level ground at the foot of the cross. This action of God is subversive, and it leads to divergent responses. I wonder, as we close, what your response to the cross of Christ actually is. Have you come to know this as the power of God and the wisdom of God? The only action that brings genuine rest, joy, peace, and life to your restless heart? Or do you continue to see this as something that is a stumbling block, foolishness, because it subverts the systems of value which you have so desperately sought to climb and to win in? And me too. There's a third group. Remember, Paul's writing to Christians with these words. Christians he refers to as fleshly, as still requiring milk and not solid food. 
and is that group that has already seen the power of God and the wisdom of God in the cross, but is continuing to live in such a way that the structures of value, worth, honor in the world still matter and carry weight. And as a result of their immaturity, there is strife, rivalry, dissension. Have you seen the cross not only as that instrument of God's power and wisdom that produces your genuine salvation, but also as the ongoing place of inspiration and power and wisdom for your ongoing sanctification into the image of Jesus? And does the cross and its subversive power dictate and guide the way that you think, speak, live, and relate with one another as members of the body of Christ, that God might be glorified. The cross of Jesus and the folly of the preaching of the cross is indeed the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of the cross. We thank you for how it subverts every other system We thank you for how it subverts our own heart's idols, our own efforts to be someone in the world. We thank you that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to continue to teach us from the cross. Lord, teach us more this week. May we glory in your cross. Oh, how we celebrate that your foolishness is wiser than men and your weakness is stronger than men. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.